Good evening, and welcome to Numa. This will be the second installment of my new sleep story series, a series by which I hope to ease your transition from that obstinate wakefulness, that stubborn restlessness of which you're the undeserving victim each night to a peaceful, happy state of uninterrupted repose. My voice as strong, as soporific as any you'll find behind the counter of your local pharmacy, is all but guaranteed to guide you to sleep. And as a perfectly natural remedy to spare you the undesirable side effects of those little chemical tablets for which we're all too conditioned to reach. Should it fail to do so, you'll have nonetheless enjoyed as a compensatory feature some of the finest literature ever written. This evening's episode is Benjamin Disraeli's Sybil, or The Two Nations. Those nations refer, of course, to the rich and the poor. Now, settle your mind. Turn down or off the brightness of your screen. Close your eyes. Concentrate on two things. Your breath and the sound of my voice. Tomorrow morning, when you wake, subscribe to this channel and leave a five-star rating on it. Assuming we consummate our time together with sleep. An excerpt now from Sybil. was a real summer day. Large, 
round, glossy, fleecy clouds, as white and shining as glaciers, studded with their immense and immovable forms the deep blue sky. There was not even a summer breeze, though the air was mellow, balmy, and exhilarating. There was a bloom upon the trees. The waters glittered. The prismatic wild fowl dived, breathed again, and again disappeared. Beautiful children, fresh and sweet as the newborn rose, glanced about with the gestures and sometimes the voices of paradise. And in the distance rose the sacred towers of the great western minister. How fair is a garden amid the toils and passions of existence. A curse upon those who vulgarize and desecrate these holy haunts, breaking the hearts of nursery maids and smoking tobacco in the palace of the rose. The mental clouds dispelled as Sybil felt the freshness and fragrance of nature. The color came to her cheek. The deep brightness returned to her eye. Her step that at first had been languid and, if not melancholy at least, contemplative, became active and animated. She forgot the cares of life and was touched by all the sense of its enjoyment. To move, to breathe, to feel the sun beam, were sensible and surpassing pleasures. Cheerful by nature, notwithstanding her stately thoughts and solemn life, a brilliant smile played on her seraphic face as she marked the wild passage of the daring birds or watched the thoughtless grace of infancy. She rested herself on a bench beneath a branching elm, and her eye, that for some time had followed the various objects that had attracted it, 
was now fixed in abstraction on the sunny waters. The visions of past life rose before her. It was one of those reveries when the incidents of our existence are mapped before us, when each is considered with relation to the rest and assumes in our knowledge its distinct and absolute position. When, as it were, we take stock of our experience and ascertain how rich sorrow and pleasure, feeling and thought, intercourse with our fellow creatures and the fortuitous mystery of life have made us in wisdom. The quick intelligence and the ardent imagination of Sybil had made her comprehend with fervor the two ideas that had been impressed on her young mind. The oppression of her church and the degradation of her people. Educated in solitude and exchanging thoughts only with individuals of the same sympathies, these impressions had resolved themselves into one profound and gloomy conviction that the world was divided only between the oppressors and the oppressed. With her, to be one of the people was to be miserable and innocent. One of the privileged, luxurious tyrant. In the cloister, in her garden, amid the scenes of suffering which she had often visited and always solaced, she had raised up two phantoms which, with her, represented human nature. But the experience of the last few months had operated a great change in these impressions. She had seen enough to suspect that the world was a more complicated system than she had preconceived. There was not that strong and rude simplicity in its organization she had supposed. The characters were more various, the motives more mixed, 
the classes more blended, the elements of each more subtle and diversified than she had imagined. The people she found was not that pure embodiment of unity, of feeling, of interest, and of purpose, which she had pictured in her abstractions. The people had enemies among the people, their own passions, which made them often sympathize, often combine with the privileged. Her father, with all his virtues, all his abilities, singleness of purpose and simplicity of aim, encountered rivals in their own convention and was beset by open or, still worse, secret foes. Sybil, whose mind had been nurtured with great thoughts, and with whom success or failure alike partook of the heroic, who had hoped for triumph, but who was prepared for sacrifice, found to her surprise that great thoughts have very little to do with the business of the world. That human affairs, even in an age of revolution, are the subject of compromise. And that the essence of compromise is littleness. She thought that the people, calm and collected, conscious at last of their strength and confident in their holy cause, had but to express their pure and noble convictions by the delegates of their choice, and that an antique and decrepit authority must bow before the irresistible influence of their moral power. These delegates of their choice turned out to be a plebeian senate of wild ambitions and sinister and selfish ends. While the decrepit authority that she had been taught existed only by the sufferance of the millions was compact and organized, with every element of physical power at its command and supported by the interests the sympathies, the honest convictions, and the strong prejudices of classes influential not merely from their wealth, but even by their numbers. Nor could she resist the belief that the feeling of the rich towards the poor was not that sentiment of unmingled hate and scorn which she associated with Norman conquerors and feudal laws. She would ascribe rather the 
want of sympathy that unquestionably exists between wealth and work in England, to mutual ignorance between the classes which possess these two great elements of national prosperity. And though the source of that ignorance was to be sought in antecedent circumstances of violence and oppression, the consequences perhaps had outlived the causes as customs survive opinions. Sybil looked towards Westminster, to those proud and passionate halls where assemblies the Parliament of England, that rapacious, violent, and haughty body that had brought kings and prelates to the block, spoiled churches, and then seized the sacred manners for their personal prey, invested their own possessions with infinite privileges, and then mortgaged for their state and empire the labor of countless generations. Could the voice of solace sound from such a quarter? Sybil unfolded a journal which she had brought, not now to be read for the first time, but now for the first time to be read alone, undisturbed, in a scene of softness and serenity. It contained a report of the debate in the House of Commons on the presentation of the national petition. That important document, which had been the means of drawing forth Sybil from her solitude, and of teaching her something of that world of which she had often pondered, and yet which she had so inaccurately preconceived. Yes, there was one voice that had sounded in that proud parliament, that free from the slang of faction, had dared to express immortal truths. The voice of a noble who, without being a demagogue, had upheld the popular cause, had pronounced his conviction that the rights of labor were as sacred as those of property, that if a difference were to be established, the interests of the living wealth ought to be preferred. Who had declared that the social happiness of the millions should be the first object of a statesman? 
and that if that were not achieved, thrones and dominions, the pomp and power of courts and empires, were alike worthless. With a heart not without emotion, with a kindling cheek and eyes suffused with tears, Sybil read the speech of Egremont. She ceased, still holding the paper with one hand. She laid on it the other with tenderness and looked up to breathe, as it were for relief. Before her stood the orator himself. Egremont had recognized Sybil as she entered the garden. He was himself crossing the park to attend a committee of the House of Commons, which had sat for the first time that morning. The meeting had been formal and brief. The committee soon adjourned, and Egremont repaired to the spot where he was in hope of still finding Sybil. He approached her not without some restraint, with reserve and yet with tenderness. This is a great and unexpected pleasure, indeed, he said in a faltering tone. She had looked up. The expression of an agitation, not distressful on her beautiful countenance, could not be concealed. She smiled through a gushing vision, and with a flushed cheek, impelled perhaps by her native frankness, perhaps by some softer and irresistible feeling of gratitude, respect, regard, she said in a low voice, I was reading your beautiful speech. Indeed, said Egremont, much moved. That is an honor, a pleasure, a reward. I never could have even hoped to have attained. By all, continued Sybil, with more self-possession, it must be read with pleasure, with advantage, but by me. Oh, with what deep interest. 
if anything that I said finds an echo in your breast. And here he hesitated. It will give me confidence for the future, he hurriedly added. Ah, why do not others feel like you, said Sybil. All would not then be hopeless. But you are not hopeless, said Agramont, and he seated himself on the bench, but at some distance from her. Sybil shook her head. But when we spoke last, said Egremont, you were full of confidence in your cause, in your means. It is not very long ago, said Sybil, since we thus spoke. And yet time in the interval has taught me some bitter truths. Truth is very precious, said Egremont, to us all. And yet I fear I could not sufficiently appreciate the cause that deprived you of your sanguine faith. Alas, said Sybil mournfully, I was but a dreamer of dreams. I wake from my hallucination as others have done, I suppose, before me. Like them, too, I feel the glory of life has gone. But my content, at least, and she bent her head meekly, has never rested I hope too much on this world. You are depressed, dear Sybil. I am unhappy. I am anxious about my father. I fear that he is surrounded by men unworthy of his confidence. These scenes of violence alarm me. Under any circumstances, I should shrink from them, but I am impressed with the conviction that they can bring us nothing but disaster and disgrace. I honor your father, said Egremont. I know no man whose character I esteem so truly noble, such a just compound of intelligence and courage and gentle and generous impulse. I should deeply grieve were he to compromise himself. But you have influence over him, the greatest as you have overall. Counsel him to return to Mowbray. 
Can I give counsel? said Sybil. I who have been wrong in all my judgments? I came up to this city with him to be his guide, his guardian. What arrogance! What short-sighted pride! I thought the people all felt as I feel, that I had nothing to do but to sustain and animate him, to encourage him when he flagged, to uphold him when he wavered. I thought that moral power must govern the world, and that moral power was embodied in an assembly whose annals will be a series of petty intrigues, or, what is worse, of violent machinations. Exert every energy, said Egremont that your father should leave London immediately, tomorrow, tonight, if possible. After this business at Birmingham, the government must act. I hear that they will immediately increase the army and the police, and that there is a circular from the Secretary of State to the Lord's Lieutenant of Counties. But the government will strike at the convention. The members who remain will be the victims. If your father return to Mowbray and be quiet, he has a chance of not being disturbed. An ignoble end of many lofty hopes, said Sybil. Let us retain our hopes, said Egremont, and cherish them. I have none, she replied. And I am sanguine, said Egremont. Ah, because you have made a beautiful speech. But they will listen to you. They will cheer you, but they will never follow you. The dove and the eagle will not mate. The lion and the lamb will not lie down together. And the conquerors will never rescue the conquered. Egremont shook his head. You still will cherish these phantoms, dear Sybil. And why? They are not visions of delight. Believe me, they are as vain as they are distressing. The mind of England is the mind ever of the rising race. Trust me, it is with the people, 
and not the less so, because this feeling is one of which even in a great degree it is unconscious. Those opinions which you have been educated to dread and mistrust are opinions that are dying away. Predominant opinions are generally the opinions of the generation that is vanishing. Let an accident, which speculation could not foresee, the balanced state at this moment of parliamentary party cease, and in a few years, more or less, cease it must. And you will witness a development of the new mind of England, which will make up by its rapid progress for its retarded action. I live among these men. I know their inmost souls. I watch their instincts and their impulses. I know the principles which they have imbibed. And I know, however hindered by circumstances for the moment, those principles must bear fruit. It will be a produce hostile to the oligarchical system. The future principle of English politics will not be a leveling principle, not a principle adverse to privileges, but favorable to their extension. It will seek to ensure equality, not by leveling the few, but by elevating the many. Indulging for some little time in the mutual reflections, which the tone of the conversation suggested, Sybil at length rose, and saying that she hoped by this time her father might have returned, bade farewell to Egremont. But he also, rising, would for a time accompany her. At the gate of the gardens, however, she paused, and said with a soft, sad smile, here we must part, and extended to him her hand. Heaven will guard over you, said Egremont, for you are a celestial charge. Celestial indeed. I hope that's where your thoughts are at this very moment. Way up in the heavens above. In the Imperium in which all your dreams exist. I bid you farewell and good night from Numa. <laughs>